So the, the title of the talk tonight I uh, just came up with, actually, as I was sitting. Uh, freedom here and now is the uh, topic of tonight. What I've been um, reflecting on for the last few weeks, and it's interesting because I actually reflected on the same topic last time I did a long meditation retreat I, I remember coming out and having these three uh, components of the Buddhist teaching come to mind and uh, uh, dwell for some time so it's known as uh, Dana Sila Bhavana those are three Pali words that mean a bunch of different things but basically uh they are the instructions for freedom from suffering um, and a fortunate rebirth from the Buddhist teaching to lay people, people that are getting laid, non-monastics, maybe getting laid, right? So the idea is that, you know, a lot of the, the teachings from the Buddha um, we're really given towards the monastics, uh, this, the followers of the way, the kind of participants that had kind of fully given up, uh, fully uh, relinquished all worldly things, possessions, whatnot. And so uh, there's a lot of kind of sometimes, you know, in this American Buddhist kind of lay community, I'm not going to go off to be a monk or a nun. There's a lot of confusion sometimes about, so, you know, because you hear the extreme end of things. But see, the Buddha, in his, you know, infinite wisdom, realized that, you know, so that's one direction. That's one path, the monastic path. Uh, and many of um, my teachers and my teacher's teachers were either monastics or... Uh, are monastics still, monks or nuns. Uh, but many uh, did kind of what I did, like went into the monasteries for a while or did long retreats, uh, but then realized that uh, that just wasn't the way in which they wanted to uh, use their life's energy, as I have maybe uh, done. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> There's still a little... I see those of you who are on Facebook kind of saw my little, my little uh, April Fool's joke of going to the monastery in Burma. Which apparently wasn't funny for some people, I don't know. But it was nice to hear feedback of, oh, you know, like, whatever. There's all these different things that people said. But, uh, so anyway, so that's one extreme. And then the other extreme is, how do you stay engaged? You know, how do you live? And there was plenty of lay people, plenty of... Um, Brahmins, which are considered at the t- in the time of the Buddha, uh, you know, kind of upper class, upper middle class, upper class, one percent, if you will, uh, that came to hear the Buddha speak because they too were suffering, just like the one percent of this here country suffers quite a bit, as well as the other ninety nine percent, because really, there's no one that isn't suffering in some way, shape, or form. And if that's the case, 
then what is this whole Buddhist thing all about? What is the Buddhist teaching really pointing to when, when they say there's a freedom from suffering? doesn't mean that life's going to be uh, peachy, uh, blissful. No. We suffer to the degree that we cling to wanting to not suffer. That's the reality. Clinging is really the key. So the Buddha um, talked about, okay, so if you're a monastic, you know, you got these 227 rules that you need to follow. And if you're a female monastic, actually 331 rules. Uh, and the reason why there's more for women is actually because the, the, the women monastics came up with some rules that were specific to them. That wasn't imposed upon them. Uh, that's a huge uh, misunderstanding in the world of kind of feminist understanding. So that actually isn't what, what went down. Not to say that there isn't some patriarchal uh, stuff going down within Buddhism. There's quite a bit. And some of that is starting to break down these days, actually, as there's been some fully ordained uh, female uh, bhikkhunis, is what they're called. Fully ordained monks, nuns. But anyway, so there's that. There was, there was this clear difference. And the Buddha gave different teachings to different groups. But a lot of what, what you often hear, you all even hear me talk about, is really a combination of the two. Because uh, everything that a monk can do, we can also do. It's just going to be a lot harder. Monk or nun. Just so you know. We're taking the path of uh, most resistance by staying fully engaged in the world and driving cars and having jobs and being in relationships and thinking about marriage and children and all of the ways in which we suffer. So this is, uh, this is the path that we choose. And so the Buddha was really clear. You can, be, uh, you can suffer less and even come to an end of suffering even as a lay person. Or, if you really want to think about it on a multi-life scheme, that this life, this one physical life force, isn't the end-all, be-all, that there actually is something after and there was something before, uh, then what what you're actually... What we're also doing in these particular practices is uh, creating the conditions for future uh, fortunate rebirth, uh, which you know I will break down. Really, it's really kind of completely in the in the future, and um, for now, it's really let's just focus on the here and now because that's really what the Buddha the Buddha was all about here and now. He actually most of the time didn't even talk about rebirth. He would say it's important maybe to think from a karmic perspective that uh, what's happening to you now came from the past and what's going to happen to you in the future depends on the now. So live now. Deal with now. Fully. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And you will have a fortunate rebirth. And that rebirth could mean your next incarnation. In other words, uh, when you're old. Or ten minutes from now. Or eight years from now, if you think about the biological kind of reproduction of the cells in our body, it's about every eight years. So from the rebirth experience, we actually are being reborn completely different 
physiological form every eight years. We're shedding our skin, our hair, our nails, right? I mean, what lasts? Our brain shrinks. Our cells replace. So this is maybe more helpful uh, way to look at rebirth versus um, whether you're going to be, you know, reborn as a snake or an insect or a heavenly realm where you're floating around in a blissful state but still suffering and not being free. That this uh, fortunate rebirth is the is what's called the human rebirth because here we have an intellect and choice and the ability to suffer. And the ability to end suffering. So that's kind of what's pointed to in the like the Buddhist perspective of uh, birth and rebirth. And there's more about it, but I'm not going to get into it too much. It gets pretty philosophical. Because really, what I want to talk about is dana, sila, and bhavana, which I haven't even really talked about. So dana is considered a foundation. Donna generosity, right? We talk about it all the time. Uh, this center, this lineage, almost any center that you go to that has the word vipassana or insight uh, is going to be following the, the Donna philosophy. Uh, this idea of reciprocity. See, the Buddha, after he was uh, fully enlightened, was pretty content with just sitting and wandering the forest alone and being awake. No worries. Right? But he was compelled uh, through compassion to teach. And in that kind of effort, and when he set up the Sangha, the, uh, the monastic community, he realized that there's a danger in uh, monks or nuns just kind of being se- not 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 necessarily selfish because self but self liberating and then just kind of getting caught in that right you always hear about people you know maybe going into caves or you know whatever and it's important to do that for periods of time and the Buddha really encouraged that and so does you know generations and generations but to be dependent on uh, lay people both as a form of reciprocity me sitting here in this seat I'm I'm providing an offering. Uh, some would say the noblest of offerings from the Buddhist perspective, the Dharma, the tools for you to awaken. They're just laid down at your feet. And then you choose whether you want to pick them up or not, space out or not, listen intently or not. It's up to you. So, uh, and then in reciprocity, um, the baskets, this center asks that people help to keep it going so that it's going to be sustainable, right? This is the whole idea. The Buddha was the first sustainable living person, the first ecologist, the first environmentalist, the first uh, feminist, some would say. I'm getting a little bit into a different Dharma talk because the Buddha was awesome. Pretty much. So he established this idea of reciprocity where generosity being the foundation because what is generosity? Generosity is the, uh, the loosening of the grip of our identity, of the I, the me, 
mile, which causes so much suffering and which in this particular country in the Western world and now even in the Southeast Asian and Asian global South is becoming more and more the globalization of consumerism is just you know growing and growing, right? This idea of uh, me and mine and I want more is better. The new shiny thing. So the Buddha, uh, you know, and I've heard I haven't been to this Burning Man situation and I heard it's, it's actually a little bit out of control at this point, actually. It's gotten a little consumerist and greedy. But the foundation was generosity, was dana, which was beautiful. So generosity, I wanted to reflect a little bit on generosity from the Buddhist perspective. You know, this idea of giving, it inclines the mind toward this freedom from attachment, right? And inclining the mind is like uh, when you have a big cruise liner and you want, and you want to change direction. What, and I actually was just sailing on the bay over this weekend, which was amazing. Uh, a little scary, but amazing. Because my buddy was like, only been out sailing three times. And I was like, yeah, okay, let's go, you know, because whatever. Just live once right? or twice or whatever. Um, enjoy. It was fun. But the idea is that you can't just you can't just turn, right? Like in a car or on a bike or a motorcycle. You can't just turn. That you have to actually veer. And it takes time. And it, there's a constant adjustment that's taking place. And the, and the same thing, I, I, I think of kind of our uh, karmic momentum or our kind of attachment to greed hatred or delusion, as being these kind of grooves in actually literally in our heart and mind. And that uh, it takes time to incline specifically, you know, neurologically, neuropathway-wise. It takes time to actually cause the uh, neurons to fire differently, to begin to, in, to begin to change our perspective, our way of viewing things. So this is kind of inclining towards the good, inclining towards generosity. So there's a few ways that we can do that. Right? I mean, the Buddha kind of talked about giving for the sake of giving. Instead of giving for the uh, obligation, like which happens a lot, like giving... Uh, I don't know, because it's a birthday or because it's Christmas or and then there's all this consumerist kind of needing, wanting. And I've been you know, caught up in that in years and then I've gone the full other direction and been like, I don't want any gifts. I'm not going to give you any gifts. I love you. You love you know, my parents and you know, my, uh, my siblings and stuff. And, and then they're like, what? Like, but this is what we do for Christmas. You know? and so then I was like, okay, so that was actually me being greedy because I was like, I'm not going to participate in your consumerist deal that actually makes you feel, you know, the illusion of happiness, right? Gratification. And so there was, a, there was greed in me holding back. But the other, so I started to just give. So then I, 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 giving for the sake of giving, giving without expectation. So then I started to do this whole thing where, um, I was just with my family today, so I'm probably reflecting on this. But giving for the idea of like, okay, I'm going to give gifts to you, but I don't want gifts from you, right? 
and you know, for a year or two, actually, my parents were, and my and uh, they were they're okay, cool, that, that's cool. You know, they were really uh, happy about that. They didn't have to go shopping. They didn't have to, and and it was actually a win-win because I didn't have to get these weird gifts I didn't really want, and you know, like strange scarves, and you know, so um, it was a win-win for a while. But then uh, this other piece came up around actually. Uh, I was I was I was actually um, interrupting their ability to feel the the joy and lightheartedness of giving because that's the other piece is so often uh, we give and there's either an expectation of receiving or there is a discounting like I'm giving I'm I'm very uh, guilty of this even today. I'll give a gift and have it be totally anonymous. You know, like leave it on someone's doorstep or whatever, or just like leave something and walk away and not 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 see their face. Not just like, and I, you know, I don't know. Sometimes me, I think it's noble. Sometimes I'm just embarrassed. I don't know. But there's actually a there, there's greed in that too, because it's it's stopping the reciprocity. And so uh, in Asia and in Southeast Asia and. Thailand and India, they make a really big deal about gifts, even the littlest things. Um, and I really, and you know, it happens here too in different places and different cultures and whatnot, but I just uh, was really aware of it um, there. And, and I'll have a few examples. And then also uh, in, on this long retreat that I was on, you know, so like, there was a few times where uh, maybe someone that I didn't even know actually, hadn't even really talked to, just was sitting in this retreat with, would leave like a little uh, flower on my pillow. Mm-hmm. And it, I would like be bawling. I was crying. It was so beautiful. Like, just totally open of like, wow, that was so generous for that person. Whatever was going on in their mind, maybe could sense that my energy, I was, you know, angry that day or whatever, having a hard time or, you know, whatever, not even knowing them would just kind of do that kind of thing, right? Um, and sometimes that kind of thing happens on retreats. Uh, so this generosity is actually a huge teaching. And it gets a little bit discounted. as it, Like it's like a... Just like do-gooder thing, you know. It's actually, some would say, it's the whole of the teaching. Because what does generosity really do? Well, it's sustainable, right? Because if I am giving the best of what I have, the least, the, the, whatever I can afford, whatever uh, feels a little bit uncomfortable, but not putting me out, right? If I can do that, then I'm loosening my own kind of uh, uh, idea of scarcity and uh, greed and opening to the idea of abundance and lightening my own heart and mind. I mean, all of you have given gifts. All of you have been generous, you know, or else you probably wouldn't have even be still sitting here, you know. You would have been like, no, this is, this is way too much time for me to give to this meditation thing. So generosity is important. And so the Buddha gave it as a first instruction. You know, practice generosity because it prepares the heart. 
I'll tell one story, and then uh, uh, of the I just kind of told one, but I'll tell another one because it is so um, touching to me still years later. So I was in Bodhgaya. Bodhgaya is the birthplace of Buddhism, basically, where the Buddha became fully awakened, sat under the Bodhi tree. You know, it's a very kind of touristy place, and there's all these monasteries there. Like the Thai monastery, the Japanese monastery, the Tibetan monastery, the this, the that, the Korean, the, you know, all these different monasteries, all these different, you know, it's like home base for Buddhism. It's an amazing place, and if you ever get a chance to go to India, go to Bodh Gaya. So I'm walking, I was on a retreat, I was doing, doing a self-retreat, so for like two weeks, I'd sit all day, and I'd walk from my, uh, the monastery I was staying at, to the, the Bodhi tree, the, the place of you know, the Buddha's enlightenment, and sit and walk and kind of just kind of take in the, this, the, uh, the exhilaration and the dedication to practice that was there from all over the world, people from all over the world. It was, you know, it's not the most peaceful place to try to meditate, right? Because you got people chanting and people bowing and people, you know, throwing... Uh, things in the air and picking them up. It was just very busy, right? So I'm walking back this one day. And it was about a half a mile from where I was to where the tree was. Um, and I'm walking back one day. I've been there for probably about a week. And I see these two beaming young monks that were like in tattered robes that had like, this is what I loved about them, that they had like uh, there's a particular style of, of, of monastic order where you just take only what's given all the time. Like you can't, like there's no, you don't have anything. So they actually don't even have a robe. They just, like, so, so they have like one piece of this robe, another, like one orange robe, one brown robe. Like they just kind of, they were like mismatched. They're, you know, misfits. They're misfit Buddhist monks. And they were like 20s, right? But so just beaming. Like dark skin, shaved heads. They were like, you know, across the street. And for whatever reason, they just like locked in on me. And they were just like, we were just made eye contact. And I crossed the street. I was like, there's something going on I need to figure out. So I went over there and I'm walking with them. And, you know, they didn't speak much English. Uh, and they were like, they invited me to their monastery, right? which was about as big as this room. And not even as uh, put together. Like an old carpet. They had lots of like Christmassy kind of lights everywhere. It was all very, it was very like bling bling and like it was, it was interesting. And some, you know, and it was just, it was very humble means, right? Uh, they, had, they had very, they were very humble. And they offered me tea and they offered me cookies, of which it seemed to me that they had very little of. And it was very, I was just very touched. And we just sat around the table and they were just like, just sharing. They just wanted to share in the Dharma. Offering, they, they were creating uh, the, the environment of, of giving. By, by inviting me there, they, were then, they could offer me something. And that was really important to them. Uh, and then they offered uh, you know, me to come and to chant with them and to, to uh, do, you know, do their, their, their particular practice, which was interesting. It was a little different. Lots of, lots of more chanting. They were young monks. You know. I probably had more experience than most of them. But that's not what mattered. So then, uh, you know, I just was kind of taking it in. And then I remember like floating home, just receiving. It was so just cool, you know. 
And I thought about them. I probably didn't really sleep much the next that night. And then the next day, I was just compelled to have an offering for them. So I went to all these stores that are like these little shops, and I just was buying everything I think a monk needed. You know, like some flip flops and toothpaste and toothbrushes and uh, the crackers that they had given me, the little cookies, and I got them like a bunch of cookies that they had given me. Um, they were like those little shortbread, like Laura Lee cookies or something like that, Lorna or whatever. They were, they were, they were good. And then some tea. I got them a bunch of tea. And just, you know, I just, and I was so filled with like joy of like being able to just give. It was really touching as I'm like thinking about it now. It was probably one of those moments where there was no uh, me there. It was really just pure like generosity. It was beautiful. And I so I gave and actually and that's not exactly true because there was a little bit of like, you know, how much is this all going to cost? I was a little bit like there was. I remember a little bit of like, you know, is this too much, you know, and then a little bit confusion around am I um, am I giving them things that they can actually use or is it just going to like sit somewhere? So I was really trying to be mindful of all that. So then I got, you know, these bags and I brought them to the monastery and I was just going to drop them off and leave, right? Like, thank you for yesterday and enjoy the, you know, the donna. And they, like, would not have it. They were like, no, no, no. And they called all of the monks into the meditation hall and they all gathered around with beaming faces and they, they, they insisted that I do a formal offering, uh, which is they put it on like a, big like metal plate and they were all taking pictures it was really and they were just making a huge deal where i just wanted to like kind of give sleek away i had already kind of received the benefits you know of just buying the stuff um and they were just so uh they were just so joyful it was really cool It's a foundational practice. Maybe the most important. Because if you really think about it, and this is what I love about Buddhism, is that one aspect can be the full path to liberation. One generosity. Practice generosity every day. Every time you can, you know. Whatever. There's tons of opportunities. And you know, and it doesn't mean, you know, that you gotta go and write a big check and you know, it just means can you be kind to somebody? Can you be generous with your time? I don't give uh, you know, I didn't give money to every leper I came across or every child beggar that I came across, which there was hundreds, thousands. You can't, right? That's overwhelming. But when you give, give with a, an open heart. That's kind of what the Buddha was pointing to. And the more you give, uh, notice the freedom that may come from it. So when we have these baskets out here, they're not because, I mean, they are on one level. Without your donations, actually this place will not be here. You know, we've actually been on, you know, because we live in America and, you know, this building isn't free and these lights, you know, they don't, they don't just pay for themselves, mm-hmm. right? You know, this cost money, that cost money. Those chairs you're sitting in, actually those were donated. So those were given as an act of generosity. You know, these Zafu cushions, $75 each, right? 
So things cost in this in this world. So it's uh, it's really about a gift economy. Look, that's an opportunity for you to free your own heart and mind from greed. Because we'll probably get along without you. Probably. But that's really what that's about. And I really thought I should give it some, some air. Because people actually, in my position as a Dharma teacher, there's a little bit of like... Uh, apprehension about talking about generosity, talking about dana, because it feels like we're begging. And I want you to know I'm, I'm not begging at all. It's your karma, not mine. That I give freely. And it's work. It is. I was reflecting on this um, this last retreat that I was on. I said to one of the teachers towards the end of the retreat, I was like, you know... I don't think I've put as much effort into anything in my entire life than Buddhism, than this practice of liberating my heart and mind. You know, and I've and and then I thought a little bit later, maybe recovery, but probably not, actually. Maybe they're, you know, pretty even. Because I had to put a lot of effort into recovery in the beginning. But I also had to put in the beginning is tough with meditation. It's hard to stick with it. So this is some of my thoughts about generosity, dhamma. And I've had the beautiful um, opportunity to experience that generosity in many places, you know, in the world, and even in this country, and even sitting just right here. Uh, in January, you know, I, I was preparing to go on a retreat. And uh, basically for the whole month of January, any money that went into the, the teacher Donna basket went specifically for me to go on to this retreat that cost like $3,000. But even better is that the money that went into that, that basket, so if you were here and you put money in that basket, then you had a direct carrying forward that the all the money that I received from this group and my other group in San Jose, I just gave to the other teachers. So you helped me give Donna to the teachers uh, that, I, that I taught with or that I sat with for the last two months. So that's really a carrying it forward. That's the reciprocity that's talked about. And I don't say that to be egoic. I say that just to know that it does carry forward. Sila. You know, I'm going to talk, I talk about sila a lot. Sila is ethical behavior, ethical living. The Buddha said, you know, so open the heart with generosity, right? Feel more gracious in your own life. And then, by living in an ethical way, in a way of non-harming, we're actually beginning to purify our life in the here and now. That it's actually the way in which we act in the world that causes all of the mental anguish that's happening. Everything that goes on in your mind that's kind of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral is because of past actions. This is a purification process. And you can begin to prepare the mind and the body 
to sustain meditation by acting in a good way in the world. But this is actually because we don't get away with anything. And I've caused a lot of suffering in my life. I've hurt people. I have. And to be able to sit with that and allow it to play itself out, then it's changed. And what happens is that the mind becomes settled. But it takes time. And what we can do is we can act now in that. And actually, sila, ethical living, is an act of generosity. Because when I'm not lying, I'm actually being generous to you. I'm giving you the truth. When I'm not stealing, I'm being generous to you. I'm giving you safety. I'm giving you the uh, freedom from fear of being harmed. So it's an act of generosity, which I love that, the way that that's connected. And I'm also giving to myself. I'm giving myself the freedom of mind. I don't have to sit with it. So, you know, so uh, uh, taking refuge, setting clear intention, skillful actions. This is what we're talking about. So freedom, you know, uh, freedom from killing. Being skillful with our uh, sexuality, our sexual intentions and actions. I like to actually use the word wise. Skillful, wise, both helpful. Some of the ways you hear it is uh, right or... um, I can't remember. There's another kind of punitive, kind of Catholic word. Gregorian or whatever. Whatever the language was when they were first translating the Buddhist teachings. They were kind of old English and they had some very negative kind of connotations. So being wise with intoxicants, being wise with our actions, being wise with our sexual energy, being wise with our words. My friend Noah was uh, teaching both in San Jose and um, San Francisco over this past weekend. And uh, you know, he was talking about how he, he's going to be sitting in this retreat with Jack Cornfield and all these like big-wig teachers for, you know, in a couple weeks. And he was given the... Um, that he's going to give. He gives one Dharma talk because there's so many teachers for eight or ten nights. You know, you only give everyone gives one Dharma talk, and he was given wise speech, and he was like, "How do you talk about what? First of all, it's funny. It's just karmic because he swears more than I do, and he's very kind of uh, disgruntled. Be another way to irreverent." Which is actually what has been appealing to me about him. Because <laughs> I'm that way too. But he was given that, that uh, assignment, which I thought was pretty wise of Jack, to give him the assignment to give a Dharma talk on wise speech. I'd like to listen to it. He, he actually gave a bit of a talk the other day. 
So the point is that, you know, these precepts, they're clear cut. There's no ifs, ands, and buts. It's like, it's like this. If you cause harm to yourself or others, there will be repercussions. To the degree in which you can choose not to cause harm is to the degree that you will suffer less. Period. There's no magic wands. There's no dunking your head in a a blessed pool of water that's going to take that away. It's up to you. It's up to me. It's up to us. That's just the way it goes. It's clear cut. The Buddha wasn't very... He didn't mix words about this. It's humane. The precepts are humane both to the person who observes them and to the people that are affected by his or her actions. So it's like the act of generosity, like I was saying, right? It's just uh, it's a, just a good way to be in the world. So uh, this last piece, you know, bhavana. This is, see, this is, most people come to Buddhist meditation or to meditation classes and they want to learn how to be free from suffering, right? They want to be happy. They've heard meditation is supposed to make them happy or stress less or, you know, whatever. And so they want to get right into the meditation and they start meditating before they've worked on generosity or uh, skillful ways of being in the world. And guess what happens? Well, two things, actually. One of two things. One, they have a blissful experience maybe the first handful of times and then it starts getting very hard. Or it's just very hard. Because there's been no preparation. And in some ways, I feel like in here in the West, we've actually done a little bit of a disservice in just saying, yeah, you want to meditate? Great. But at least there is this full circle of teaching that's, that's present. And, you know, I mean, I, I wasn't really into living ethically when I first started meditating or being wise with my speech or sexuality. I just wanted to meditate because it felt good. It was pleasant. It's kind of like being on mushrooms at times. And then it got hard. Because it gets hard. Because we're dealing with inclining our minds. So unless you're, you know, karmically clean... It's going to be challenging. So, one of my friends says, buckle your seatbelt. It's a bumpy ride. So this, but this bhavana, really, uh, it really means development, right? Development of mind. It's shorthand for the development of skillful qualities in the mind. Bhavana is a type of karma. So in the yogic tradition, there's this idea of karma and that we're, um, we're actually working through our... That karma actually means, or karma actually means the work to be done. But that's actually what it means. And sometimes it really means work, like getting out there, doing the work. And sometimes it means sitting and burning off our negative karmic momentum by not reacting to it in the way that we always have and learning to do it in a different way. Sorry, guys. That's that's what this is about. And like I talked about last week, that if you actually can do that, that there is this way in which you can touch what that bliss is about. It's true. 
you know, last week I talked about uh, luminous is the mind, brightly shining. This is true. The mind is luminous, brightly shining. When it's free from the attachments that visit it, which is our karma, our karmic momentum, our negative, unskillful habits of mind that we have been building and building and building and reacting to and reacting to and reacting to. But it's up to you, right? So to just take it a little bit further, I won't get into too much more. I have a couple more pages on the bhavana, but I won't do that to you. But I will uh, read this... um, This weighty utterance of the Buddha. This is the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta. Satipatthana is um, the four foundations of mindfulness. So basically, ultimately, the practice that we do here. This is the Buddha's words of, uh, of what this practice will give you. This is the only way, practitioners... For the purification of beings. For the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation. For the destruction of pain and grief. For reaching the right path. Meaning liberation. For the uh, attainment of Nibbana. Freedom from suffering. Namely, the four foundations of mindfulness. This is the only way. Which is... Cultivate the mind, developing uh, generosity and uh, ethical living, ethical behavior. Mm. There's another one. I'll, I'll just read this other quote. The meditator, this is the Buddha again, the meditator uh, remains focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, mindful. Those are three directions. Ardent, alert, mindful. This is how one practices. Uh, Putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. So I kind of broke those down. Remaining focused means keeping track. This is the element of uh, concentration. Development of concentration. Aim and sustain present time awareness, development of concentration. Ardent. Ardent refers to the effort that we put into this practice. You've heard me talk about effort before. You've heard me talk about mindfulness and concentration before. Because really, there's only a couple things that the Buddha talked about. Meditate. Free yourself. And do it as soon as possible. Basically, that's what the Buddha talked about. Or... You'll be born again, not you, but this karmic momentum that you identify with as you will uh, be born again, and you'll do the whole thing over again, and again, and again, and again. There's this, um, I'm going to kind of paraphrase, but there's this vision that there's this, uh, I don't know what it's called, an analogy maybe, that the Buddha gives when he's working with someone around compassion and he's talking about you know, this person's um, 
mother died or something like that, and he was weeping. And, uh, and the Buddha said, uh, in this really kind of clear, all-knowing way, more tears, you personally have shed more tears than the whole oceans of that which has died in the years, in the lifetime after lifetime of samsara. And then there's another uh, kind of idea around, I can't remember the exact what he gave. I think it might have been, it was some, some, something big or like the, so much blood has been shed in the, all of the wars, all of the suffering, all of the people that you know that, has, that have died. Lifetime after lifetime. Why not get free? So like whether you believe that or not. And you feel, you know, like personally there's been some, you've had some loss, some trauma, some death, some love loss, some hurt, some pain. This is the only way for the purification of beings, for, the, for overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of pain and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of Nibbana, namely this, the four foundations of mindfulness. This is not a passive practice. People like to accuse us of being passive and selfish. This teaching is designed to help the practitioner lessen suffering and gain clarity of mind while developing generosity, non-clinging to greed, and living day to day in a way that is non-harming to self and others. You cannot free any other being until you have freed yourself. And what that means to me is if I'm a few steps ahead, then I can look back. But if I haven't taken a few steps, I got nothing to offer. Right? Bob Marley said something like that, right? Free your mind. No one but ourselves can free our mind. I had this Bob Marley uh, beautiful moment of uh, calm, tranquil experience while I was in walking. I was walking in the forest on this retreat, and I can't really describe it. But nothing was in my mind, and my body was filled with beautiful energy, like really alive. And Bob Marley came in my mind, and I was, and it was beautiful. There was something about that, you know, that song, uh, I don't want my boat to be rocky. It was just great. Like, I don't, you know, peaceful, easy feeling. That's what, there was some lyrics that just came in and it was, I was like, oh, that's what Bob was talking about. It was cool. Okay. I think that's enough for now. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.